Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anyone and everyone. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Exenball. Caleb, I think I'm going to begin to develop a beard de-icer. What do you think? I have no idea what to think. He has no comment because he doesn't have a beard. Anyway, we have a great episode for you today. Today, we're going to be talking with Brian Kaplan. And Brian is a professor at George Mason University. He's an econ professor there. And he recently wrote a book called The Case Against Education. We said against. We said against. Why the education system is a waste of time and money. And so if that doesn't intrigue you, I don't know what will. But before that... Besides beard de-icer. But before that, we are going to recommend for you a Learner's Corner podcast recommendation. This is the resource of the week. I just feel like that's so necessary to say it like that. So hey guys, this week I have a resource for you. If you aren't already listening to it, Troy Maxwell and Stephen Brewster of Freedom House Church, they're both friends of the podcast, they are both running a podcast now. It's called Free to Lead. It's a great, great show. You should check it out. But one of their episodes that they have aired um, this past fall was called Why Communication Matters to Your Leadership. And they interviewed a man named Paul Scalin, who's a master communicator. and He does all sorts of, of, of cool stuff with that. And one of the things that I learned is that communication is 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 important, not just to make sure that your thoughts are clear and so that you can make sure that that, that what you're saying has is, is been articulated properly. However, it's also important for your leadership. The reason why is because they want to know that you understand what they're saying. It isn't because they want to control you, but it's because they want to make sure that they have been clear enough on their end. And so it's important that you are able to clearly articulate and communicate back to them things that, that you your expectations and the things that you um, know that they want you to, to carry out, whether it's a task or um, just philosophy or vision. They want to be able to know that you understand their expectations. Great episode, uh, and, and it was one that really kind of has helped me to be able to process through um, communicating with leadership and, and, and kind of being able to, to make sure that everything is crystal clear. Yeah, and if you enjoyed our episodes with Troy or with Stephen, this is a great podcast for you to check out, and we'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes. This has been your Learner's Corner approved resource of the week. Now, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast today, we're talking with Brian Kaplan, and Brian recently wrote a book called The Case Against Education. So Brian is A, a professor, and B, really smart. And so he wrote this book, and I was so excited to be able to talk to him because it just seems like a very anti-society idea that he's kind of perpetuating here, which is, you know, hey, we need to, to, to we need to, to, to dev- maybe even devalue education um, in, in certain ways or not spend as much on it. And so it's a really fascinating conversation because it's one of those ones that helps stretch our mind and it helps us to be able to think about different things. And on the learner's point, we love to be able to learn uh, and, and listen to other perspectives. And so this is going to be a great episode for some, for, for some of us. I know it was for both of us to be able to, to think about something from a different perspective. And again, you may not agree with everything that he says on this podcast, and that is perfectly 
okay. You don't need to agree with everyone or agree with someone about everything in order to learn from them. And so that's why we do this podcast. And so honestly, this podcast may make some of you very mad and that's okay. So without further ado, we're going to jump into our conversation with Brian Kaplan. And remember, even if this podcast makes you mad, there's something that you can learn from it. Well, Brian, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Fantastic to be here. You know, you just recently um, released a book called The Case Against Education. Can you tell us what made you want to write this book, especially since you're a professor? All right. Well, I am a professor. I see myself as a whistleblower. I think there's an enormous amount of waste of taxpayer dollars going on and an enormous amount of waste of students' time. And I feel responsibility to go and share this information with the world if anyone wants to listen. You know, if I weren't a professor, who would actually believe me to say, you know, sour grapes, he's just jealous, <laughs> professor. Um, you know, in terms of what motivated me to write this, I'd say this is actually, out of everything I've ever done, this goes back to the earliest ages. I remember just being confused by even kindergarten, like, why do we have to study this stuff? And, you know, the answer I always got was, well, you can't get a good job unless you study this stuff. And then... Part of my reaction was, well, wait, why can't I get a good job without studying this stuff? And another part of my reaction is, that sounds right. I better play this game well, or else I'm going to lock myself out of a bright future. And, you know, the more I went through the educational system, the more puzzled I got, and yet this tension, like, you've got to do this if you want to do well in life, and yet it's not relevant to anything you're ever going to do again. The more that weighed on me. And then when I came into economics, I finally got a very clear explanation about how this thing is possible. Uh, there's something called the signaling model, and it basically just says that employers might reward you not for the skills that you learn in school, but for the traits that you reveal. In other words, school might be certifying you, putting a stamp on your forehead, grade A worker. And when I heard that, all right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, the interesting thing about the signaling model is that it's got very high status as a, in the realms of pure mathematical theory. So there's a guy named Michael Spence who was a Nobel Prize for this idea. So like, what's my contribution? My contribution is taking it seriously about the real world. So, you know, while you know, it has really high status in pure theory, empirical uh, labor and education economists tend to think of it as, oh, well, there's that idea, but, you know, we don't really need to worry about it. It's kind of ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. And this book, I just want to bring together all of the real world evidence saying that this idea of education as certifying, certifying worker quality rather than really improving it just holds, an, uh, holds a lot of water and is most of the story. Mm -hmm. Now. Is there, like, do you value, I'm assuming that you do value some education, though. Is that correct? Yeah, of course. Well, like, you know, there's you know, reading, writing, and math. That stuff. That stuff's useful for virtually everybody. And then in terms of, you know, what matters to me in my own life, then I am a big high-culture person. Uh, but what I, what I say is that if the education is neither useful in your future nor enjoyable at the time, then it's wasteful. And I say, you know, like most of the education that most people do is neither something that they will ever use again on the job, and it's not something they enjoy at the time. So in that sense, it is a waste of time and money. Um, so why why do people value the education system, or why should people value the education system? Let's see. I mean, the education system that we have. Well, there's, I mean, I guess to answer your second question first, they shouldn't. It's terrible. <laughs> they should not value it. Uh, you know, why, you know, why do they? You know, you know, so, of course, for any individual, you know, like, education is the gatekeeper to a lot of the things that you want to do with your life. And so people value it because 
Other people in our society value it. And as to why those people value it, you know, like, like what I say is that you know, given all this pressure on people to go and, and, and excel in education, if you do poorly, this says something bad about you. It makes people nervous about interacting with you, makes employers especially nervous about hiring you. And so people do it. So, you know, we're locked into this perverse situation where if one person were to say, this is stupid, I'm not doing it anymore, the reaction of the world is not, you know what, you're right, but rather, you know, check out this weirdo. Uh, I don't want to hire that guy. So why, why, in your opinion, is the education system overrated? Uh, yes, well, a lot of ways. So, you know, you know the, the primary one is that people take a look at all of the extra money that more educated people make and just easily assume, and just, you know, glide to the conclusion that school is actually pouring job skills into them, right? And on the other hand, if my story is right, really what it's doing is certifying you, then from a social point of view, it's, it's, it's very wasteful because, you know, everybody can't be the best uh, student in the world. Everyone, you know, everyone can't be in the top 25%. So in other words, if the reason why education raised income was that it was pouring skill into you, it would be a path to a better society. But if the main thing that it's doing is just certifying you, then it's not. It's a path to individual success, but it's a path to social failure. It's a way that we can just burn up lots of time and money. You know, imagine a world where everyone's getting a PhD. Is that really a great world? Well, if PhDs were actually transforming regular human beings into incredible workers, then it can all pay for itself. But if all you're doing is just jumping through hoops to impress the world, then that's not a path for social success. So, see, that's that's the problem. Mm-hmm. In your book, you really you really spend a lot of time talking about this idea of signaling and mm-hmm. you know how education single singles different things. Can you explain what you mean by uh, sig- signaling and how um, the education system singles or signals? Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, you know, signaling is just a fancy word for certifies or convinces. Uh, so, you know, like any time that you do that, you do anything to uh, you know, you know, to reveal uh, the, you know, to reveal your talents, reveal your abilities, reveal your character. We can say that you're signaling. So, you know, like you might signal with your clothes. You might say, "I'm wearing a suit, so I am a sober, respectable man." Or you might have a, a, a green mohawk, and then you are signaling, "I am a rebel. I'm a punk rocker." Something like that. Now, one of the most important things that people in our society signal is employability. Right. And I say that you know, in our society, education is probably the single most important signal that people send of employability or something that you, you, you do to convince other people to at least give you a chance. Like this person is worthy of being hired and trained and at least being at least seeing whether the person uh, you know, person is the right stuff for this job. Um, sorry, what was, the, what was the, the second part of the question? Uh, yeah. So like, like you know, what, what is it that people are signaling? So you know, signaling is really a whole package of traits that you signal with your education. You know, the, you know, the obvious one is you signal your intelligence. So smart people find it easier to do well in school. So you see someone's got a degree from MIT, you think, all right, that guy's probably really smart. Um, so it also signals your work ethic. So you, we all know smart people who just are so lazy that they don't succeed in life. So another thing you're signaling with education is that you're willing to go and buckle down and work. And then a final thing that I think it tends to be especially neglected is Education signals conformity, signals that you are willing to submit to the rules, to hold your tongue in the face of annoyance at how stupid the rules are and just comply and conform. All right. And again, of course, uh, all of these traits are very valuable uh, you know, in an employee. Right. So, you know, like even even firms that say we really want creative employees, but we don't want them so creative that they question whether they should be the employee or the boss. 
right? You still, you know, like, you know, even a creative employee still needs to know their place and still needs to work on what they're told to work on and, 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 you know, and, and get along with other people well enough that the, the things proceed. So I think that's, that's another key thing that, that's being signaled is just, is just this conformity. And particularly what's striking is that you think about someone who had two of these traits but still had no credentials. You generally, generally think they're probably terrible in the other trait. So like you knew that someone was really smart and hardworking, but then they dropped out of high school. You know, you'd say, well, this problem, the person is probably so defiant, they can't get along with anybody. Right, or again, if you saw someone who was super hardworking but still hadn't finished uh, finished school, you say, well, probably the person is not very bright. So there, you know, they're, they're, the problem is that you know is, is, is that you know, like, like your education really signals this whole package of traits, and if there's and, and if and, and like you you, you know, like whatever else you show, if you're missing that degree, then there's at least a lot of suspicion that there's something wrong with you, right? And especially in a society like ours where we value education so much, to not do it is deviant Mm -hmm. so you know with with this whole thing that the education system kind of signals things is there anything that we can you know do or become aware of to kind of overcome this need for like the education or like seeing that you know that Mm -hmm. there's many many paths besides um just the education system does that make sense yeah, sure. So the main thing that I talk about in the book is just cutting spending on education, which, you know, like, what's the connection? Well, think about this. In 1945, probably you know, something like you know, three quarters of Americans would, have, would not have even finished high school. Back in those days, if an employer said, I don't even bother to interview high school dropouts, they would have been throwing out three quarters of the possible employees. Not, not a very smart idea for most jobs. Uh, so back in those days, the stigma against being a high school dropout was pretty small because you, most people were in the same boat. These days, on the other hand, it's you know such a small group of people that have dropped out of high school. There's a very harsh stigma against them. And what, what's interesting is that over time, the amount of education you need to do one of the same job has skyrocketed. So I mean, there's something like a, a four-year increase in the average education of American workers during this period from 45 to today. And when researchers have tried to see, well, how much of that change is caused by jobs becoming more cognitively demanding, and how much of it is just that we have jacked up the amount of education you need to become a waiter, the general answer is like 80% of it is, is jacking up the required education. So I mean, just like we've seen this horrible credential inflation over this period, where you need a lot more education to get the, than your dad did to get the very same job. Uh, I say that you know that if uh, education were more expensive, people would get less of it, and this would greatly deflate the stigma, and we could go and we could have credential deflation. We could go back to a world where you could get you could get a good job right out of high school or earlier. So one of the things that seems like you argue for in the book is is more vocational training, whether mm-hmm. that's through vocational right. schools, like trade schools, or actual training within high schools today. Right. Talk to us yeah, a little bit about or, that. Or, or just, just encouraging people to get jobs, so counting that, counting that as, as credit for high school. Uh, yeah. So, you know, again, the main thing I focus on, again, is just cutting education spending, and like, 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 like on the theory that like, it's really easy to cut spending and very hard to improve, and very hard to improve the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but out of all the different improvements that I – that the possible ways of improving the system that we have that I've seen, the one that seems most promising to me is more career and vocational education. Right? And again, primarily just because here you are being trained for a job. So it's, you know, it is more of 
the you know what we what we like to think that education is, where you're actually going and pouring skills into the students, which they can then use in the real world. So, so you know, there's there's actually quite a lot of evidence that you know that that it would be that students would actually be more successful, selfishly speaking, if they just did a bit more vocational education. But again, from a social point of view, that's where it's very clear that it's better for society because. Vocational education is not primarily just about jumping through hoops to impress people. It's about learning how to do some practical thing, right? I mean, even if it is uh, like even a very low-skill job, you're still learning to show up on time, to deal with customers, to deal with coworkers, to uh, to get along with the boss. And even if you look at the you know, workforce participation rates for you know for you know, for, ma- uh, for high school dropouts, both male and female, you'll see there's now a lot of Americans who really seem to have almost no you know, no contact with the labor market. Well, like, like ever, so I mean, just to go and get them, you know, get them trained to do any job at all would be a big improvement for society. So yeah, so you know, vocational education, I, I do have a whole chapter on that, and that does seem like a, a better approach. And I, you know, talk a bit about countries where vocational education is bigger. Again, you know, the problem is there is the stigma against it, at least compared to academic education. We think you know that's only what you do if you can't hack the regular stuff, right? And I and I do say that like you know. You know, it'd be you know, like a much better, a better use of taxpayer dollars to go and put money into that rather than conventional academics. Yeah, and why would you say there, there's still that stigma against vocational, you know, education? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Well, you know, here's the thing: is that in our society, it's true that it's generally the, the weaker students to do it, and so it's not just made up. It's the kind of thing that people go to when they're when they're struggling with the uh, regular regular academic curriculum. So, you know, like on, a, on average, they're probably going to be worse workers. Uh, so, you know, like, the, you know, this, this, you know, the, you know, the stigma makes sense that at least you say, well, like, like, who would you rather go and hire for a managerial job? You want to hire the vocational education kid or do you want to hire the college bound kid or like or the college graduate, probably the, the college graduate. But, uh, you, know, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing where you take, you take students where, they, you know, like, like you know, Again, like like like, like, they, like, they, you know, like their academic performance is, is worse. So and again, that's 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 actually an important predictor of general job performance. But it actually improves them more in terms of what they're able to do, right? And again, you know, from the point of view of an individual, if there's something you could do to make yourself better, but there's a stigma against it, then you've got to wonder, huh? Well, maybe I shouldn't do it. But from a social point of view, if you're improving people, then really what counts is you're getting more productive workers, and, you know, they can, who contribute more to society as a result. Brian, like you've said, one of the major things that you talk about in the book <clears throat> is, is, is ways to cut spending and education and all that stuff. But one of the things I'm interested about is, you know, there also is this, 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 this group of people that would say, well, you know, if you do that, you really create a problem because, you know, college should be a time when people can experiment and figure out who they are and what they, what they want to, what they want to be. What would you say, what would you say to those people and, and what are some alternatives to that? Right. So it's, you know, like experimenting to find out what you want to be is a great idea. And really, really, you shouldn't be waiting until college to do it. It should be happening much earlier. It should be happening, you know, like you know, middle school, high school, maybe even elementary school. And the reason why I say college is not a very good way of doing that is college basically exposes you to a long list of unrealistic options. Right. So it's like, oh, I could be an historian or I could be a translator or I could be a psychologist, you know, or, you know, you know, like, you know, or I could you know, be major in religious studies. I mean, again, these are all fields where there are almost no jobs. So you can search around and, and expose yourself to a bunch of options, none of which are actually realistic for most of the students. So, you know, like, you know it just doesn't seem like, like seem, seem very useful. Basically, just teachers going and teaching the stuff that they themselves learn. So, you know, like, and you know, it's been passed on for generation to generation. 
yes, I said before, better to go and expose students to realistic options, options that lots of people might actually find gainful employment in and enjoy. So you know, that's why in the book I talk about you know, things like you know, like when kids are in middle school or high school, just go and you know, tell, you know, tell them like like you know, the, you know like these these are the main jobs that people actually get. There you know like mo- there's very few scientists, very few historians, very few professional athletes. So unless you're the best of the best, those are not a, those are not those are not good paths for you to try. Those are not good gambles. Here are a bunch of things that actually have a lot. And there's a lot of employment. And then you know so you know there's there's basic things of just saying well where where what are the currently available jobs. And then there's also plenty of forecasts of what what are the occupations that are going to be growing and shrinking over time. Are the forecasts perfect? Of course not. But yeah, it's a pretty fair bet that we're going to need more jobs for elder care uh, over as the elderly percentage of the population keeps going up. Uh, so you know, so there's that. And again, if you do have a system with more vocational education, then you're just giving people a tasting menu of vocational education, right? So let's spend two weeks learning about plumbing. Anyone like that? All right, well, maybe two people. All right, well, that's a good one for you. How about two weeks on electricity? You're an electrician. Try that one, right? So just you know, just cycling through a lot of realistic occupations, and then if then just give people you know, like 20 different things they can see. But again, important that you have people taste items on the tasting menu that are viable options instead of pie in the sky, which is most of what students are told. I mean, how many kids have ever taken an English class and become a poet? And yet how many English teachers have, have ever told them, oh, any one of you could be a poet? Uh, well, I guess anything's possible. I could be struck by lightning, but it doesn't seem like good advice. So is there a line there then between just being being realistic, but also kind of curbing kids' imagination and, and all of that? Is there a line there? Or is it just or is it just like, hey, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that this is this is the fact. Like, is there is there isn't there a point where for educators, does there a part that they play in trying to help students to be able to realize their full potential? And then is there also that line where it's like, you know, hey, you're leading them down a path that just isn't even realistic? Yeah. So, so there is a trade off. But I think that socially right now we, we go very far towards filling kids heads with false hopes and very little towards bringing them down to earth. Right. So, you know, like, you know, if there, if there were a parent who just said, look, kid, you're never going to be a professional athlete. Uh, that's just not realistic. You know, like like we know for most kids, you know, so many kids dream of being professional athletes. I think when I was a kid, maybe half the boys thought they would be professional athletes. And, you know, like when you're five years old, fine, you can live, you can live your lie. But, you know, once once you're 12, do you have to keep said to keep telling them, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you totally become a professional hockey player when you're not even the best in your in your school? Yeah, so that's that's where I would say no. Like that's the time to you know, like we really should, you know, like you know don't crush people's spirits, but just like be honest. Saying like I gotta be honest with you, kid. Like that's not that's just so unlikely to happen. You might as well just give up on it. Um, and you know, like here are some things that, that you know that, that are viable. And like why don't you try a bunch of things that might work out? You know, so yeah, saying like I have ordained that you'll be an accountant from the age of five. That seems bad to me. But saying, look, here are 20 jobs which seem viable for you. Well, why don't you why don't you try them and see whether you like them? Seems like a much better approach than fostering you know, all the false hope that the current system does. So on the flip side of that, um, as, we're, as I'm thinking about higher education, which would be you know, undergrad and then going on further than that, it seems like uh, uh, one of the things that you would advocate for is really the only people who should be doing that are people who are pursuing things that require specialized training such as doctors lawyers people like that um how how do how do you know when that's more of the direction you want to go in and then how should how is there a way that we should pursue it that's different than the way people currently are pursuing it like for instance i'll give you an example one of the things that i thought of was 
you know, 100 years ago or more, you know, if a person wanted to be a lawyer, they would go and read law with a lawyer. Yeah. Whereas now they go to a school to learn. Can you comment on that at all? And, and is there a way that can, it can be fixed or, or work within that? Right. Uh, so, again, like my, my first fix is always you know, cut off the government subsidies and see what happens. <laughs> and in the case of you know, lawyers and especially doctors, also there are, you know, the, licensing regu- the licensing regulations are so strict that it's almost impossible to do anything and do any alternative thing. But yeah, those are both occupations where there's absolutely no reason why, you, why people couldn't immediately do them after high school, why you would need to have an undergraduate degree first, except that that's the system we have set up. I mean, you know, even, even to be legal, I think, you know, even to get the license, you probably need to have that. Or there'd be at least there'd be big accreditation problems. Yeah, so like in a lot of European countries, you can go straight from high school to medical school, like with skipping this undergraduate thing. What's the point of that? Um, so, um, you know, yeah, so you know, like, you know, like even cases like that are ones where I think that you know there, there's a great deal of waste. But you know, your bigger question of like you know who should be going to college, and so like you know there there you know there are people who actually get some you know get useful stuff out of it. So like you know again, if you really want to work in the fields that are being taught, so like you really want to be an historian or psychologist or something like that, of course that's a pretty small number of people, uh, right? And uh, let's see, yeah. So you know, you know so you know, you know like, like, you know, again, sort of like my rule of thumb that I just said, you know, maybe maybe like ten percent of kids, you know, undergraduate degree makes sense for them. Uh, you know, so that that's that's one where it's more of a back of the envelope. I don't you know. So I've got some calculations, but I don't have that that exact one in the book. But uh, yeah. So another thing that has had a major impact on the education system is just the internet and being able and being able to go online. You know, people are a lot are starting to, you know, self-educate themselves. Can you talk about the impact that the internet has had on the education system? Uh, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, and you know, this will feed into it just to back up. I mean like who else should who else should get an undergraduate degree? People who genuinely genuinely enjoy academics. So if you actually like this stuff, if you're riveted on the edge of your seat by history or by psychology or by economics, you know, then even if it's not preparing you for your job, then this could be a good option. Although, as you're saying, the internet has really made or created a great cheap alternative for anyone who really thirsts for enlightenment, and that is, you know, why do you have to schlep to some physical institution? Why not just go learn about it online? And you, know, you don't have to be isolated online, right? You can be interacting with other people that are curious about the same thing. There are there, there's of course you know a vast library now of the best lecturers in the world going and explaining the you know the most academic subjects that you can imagine. So my view of online education is that most of its fans think of it as something that's going to outcompete the current system. Uh, I'm very skeptical of that. My story is precisely because conformity signaling is so important that. When you go and do something weird, like saying, I'm not going to a regular university, I'm going to go, go and do online education, I think that does, uh, you know, there's a big stigma against that, which is going to greatly restrain the competition that online education poses. But in terms of just enriching the human spirit and, and letting people explore their interests and curiosity, uh, then, you know, like, you know, the internet is a cornucopia. It's fantastic. You know, like when I was a kid, if it had existed, I, I would have I would have gotten down on my knees and, and thanked the thank the universe for delivering this this almost unimaginably wonderful technology to me. So let me tell you, when I was high school, I was bored out of my mind. You know, uh, Brian. Before we move on to a couple of questions that we love to ask all of our guests, is there anything else that you would like our audience to know about the case against education or the case, or the education system that might help them? Uh, sure. So 
I mean, for me, like the, the origin of all this work is like this disconnect between learning and earning. Why do I have to learn this stuff and why do people go and pay me in order to do it after I've done it? Right. And you're going to see like, you know, like, like, you know, the kinds of stuff that you use in the job are so different from the kinds of things that you learn most of the time in class. And yet employers still seem to really care. That's the weird thing. You know, if you want to learn a bunch of useless junk and then employer said, that's stupid, I don't care. There'd be no big mystery here. The real mystery is why can you go and study, you know, like why is it that you can, that you fail Latin and then employers don't want to look at your resume? Right? That's bizarre. Right? I'm like a Latin class short of graduation. What, 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 is this a job that involves Latin? Like, what are you talking about? And employers do care. And the signaling is really the story that explains that. Mm-hmm. And then, as I, you know, I say in the book, there's just a lot of other symptoms of signaling going on. Uh, you know, I just point out, like, why is it that students love it when professors cancel classes? You know, if you were actually paying for them to deliver skills, it's basically be like you hire someone to fix a roof, and they say, you know what, I'm going to take your money and not fix your roof. Are you okay with that? Right? And yet students love it when professors cancel class. Right? Yay! Right? And, and why? Because it doesn't show up on the transcript. They still get to get, they get the same grade for less work. Which is and and that means that employers will be none the wiser and they'll never know, right? Or I talk about why is it that uh, most people when after you after you take the final exam you're likely to forget most most of what you learned maybe all, maybe all of what you learned, and yet you know, you know so you, know, you may eventually be at the point where you know as little about the class that you got an A in as if you had failed it because you've just forgotten so much of what you learned after you've done the final exam, and yet the labor market treats you very well if you have A's in a bunch of classes and forget all the material, but treats you very poorly if you've got a transcript full of F's and get the knowledge that you've retained in both cases the same. So what's the difference? And I say, you know, signaling is the difference. Signaling is the difference where if you did well once and forgot it, well, then you've shown that you can learn stuff and that, yes, you have an imperfect memory, but who doesn't? On the other hand, if you just have F's, then you've shown a whole bunch of bad things about yourself and lawyers say, I don't want to go and hire that guy. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm if I'm an employer, you know, what things, you know, obviously the education does or the education system does signal things. Do you have any advice to employers who are looking for the best employees? Like what what advice would you give to them whenever choosing people or choosing employees? Yeah, that's the right question. So I always hesitate to act like I know better than someone who actually has a lot of practical experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what I'm more inclined to do is. Just say, look, here's an experiment. I'm curious it would be a better better be improvement over what you're doing. Would you try it for me? I'm not saying I actually know better than you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I would be curious if they you know, like employers are just trying more experiments where they hire where they hire people basically for zero. They hire people who haven't finished school for like as, as unpaid interns, but with strong promises that if they do well, then they can actually be promoted in the same way someone with, with degrees and see how that turns out. Say, like, you really just get the dregs that will take that, or will it, can you get some good students to do it? Um, you know, I, like, I so I do not think that regulations uh, against IQ testing are that, are, that, are that effective, but I do wonder sometimes whether lawyers are uh, leading employee or basically creating the or like, like you know, misinforming their, uh, their clients about how about how about, about the punishments for IQ testing. So, in the book, what I say is that you know, there's this whole urban legend that IQ testing is banned in the United States for employment. And yet the truth is that while there are some legal issues, the punishments against it are so rare, are so rare and so mild, it still seems like a, like a good, a good chance to, to push your luck. 
So I think I would actually go and and, and ask as employers, like, would you experiment with just hiring less credentialed people using uh, using standardized tests and see how that works out? So those are some ideas I really like to see tried anyway. Although again, I'm not arrogant enough to say they're actually better than what they're doing. Maybe maybe there's maybe they've already cracked the code and this is the best we can do, given all of the government subsidies to a crummy system we got. You know, Brian, just as we're getting ready to um, finish our interview, we always love to ask our guests just a few uh, questions. And one question that we want to ask you is, you know, what's one thing that you've started doing recently that has helped you a lot? Hmm. Let's see. I guess the answer that I'm going to give you is, you know, so about a year ago, I, uh, I worked out a deal with, uh, with, with, with fame cartoonist Zach Wienersmith of Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial to do a, to do a graphic novel with me. Mm-hmm. And you know he is an incredible collaborator, and, and you know I mean I'm a long-term fan of comics, but he but working with someone who's a practitioner has taught me so much. And I mean I just acquire I just like he's you know giving me new teaching me he's teaching me new skills. I mean so it's just just so great to have this genuine collaboration where it's not just uh, like each of us does our thing and it comes together, but where like you know he actually goes and improves me. And so um, I mean that's that's you know and that's just something where you know, of course. You know, professional economists are not generally trained to, uh, for as graphic novelists, uh, but I mean, I was curious about whether I could do something totally different from what I've been doing. And you know, I'm a big enough fan that I thought I had a chance. And you know, I, I talked to you know, like a great artist into working with me on it, and the project is turning out great. So uh, I think I think, think that that'll be my answer. I have always wanted to ask a professor this question, like somebody with a like who's a professor. <laughs> I'm really excited about this. All right, ask away. How do you learn best? Like you're a person who's who's pursued mm. education really far. How yeah. do you learn best? Right. So, it's you know, so again, like, like there, in my in my view, though, there's two very different kinds of things. There's practical activities, and then there's acquiring information. Right. And you know, like you know, for any practical thing, I learn this. I learn best the same way the, the same way as almost everyone. I learn by doing. So. You know, like, like, like if I want to, you know, like, like, you know, I, I'm not any great computer programmer. What I wanted to learn, I, I like, so I could either read the manual, no, no, give me a working program and let me look at it and then play around with it and go back and forth. If I go and change a variable, what, how does the program change? So, I mean, learning by doing, I think, you know, like, is like, like, is the best way for practical tasks. For you know, acquiring academic information or like, like, you know, like, you know, like writing a book like this, uh, what I generally do is. Start off with uh, with Google Scholar, and I just go and try to come up with a big list of uh, you know of search terms that seem relevant, and then I just go through and look at the, you know the top two or three hundred citations uh, on each topic, and then I, you know, I go and I collect a, you know get get everything get everything that seems like it might be relevant, and then from there I go and read the pieces and I read the references and I find references that seem like they're relevant, and then references in the references, and. So you know, like the the way that it, like really every every section in this book was written is that I start off with sort of a high level search, uh, and then what and then I you know I I feel like I get get a good idea about what's going on, and then right before I actually write the section, I reread everything that is that is germane to that section, and then I also go into a final last massive literature search where I go and try to find anything relevant, and I read it all nonstop. In, in like right before I write, and then the moment I write is when I know more about that topic than I ever will again in my life. And you know, like I mean, I know I'm going to forget a lot of stuff, but at the moment I'm writing, I've got everything I've ever been able to find right in front of me. It's all marked up, and 
that and and then I you know I write the section and I feel like look this is the best that I'm capable of doing at this point, and then move on to the next section and then re- repeat. So I mean this book did take six years to write. So I mean this process I'd not recommend it to anyone who writes under deadline or who gets paid by the word. Right? But uh, I mean in terms of my intellectual conscience, this this is what seems to me the best approach. And again, especially not just going in and reading the things written by other people in your field, which is a terrible way to understand the world. It's like, well, I'm an economist, so I'm gonna read what economists think about education. Right? We'll start there. We all have to start somewhere, but they're not the only people who think about education. Go and read sociologists, read educational psychologists, go, uh, go and read education researchers. You know, read everybody that seems like they might have something to contribute and organize their thinking around the topic, not the discipline, which, again, you know, you know, focusing on the discipline is a great way to get ahead within a discipline, but it's a terrible way to understand the world. So I always try to just read really broadly and then to read really intently, uh, intently right before I write. So again, I can at least at that moment be my be the very best I'm capable of being. Why is it so important for you know in your instance to not just learn from economists or other economists, but to learn from you know various different types of people? Well, because economists don't know everything. There's a lot of things economists aren't even aware exist. So if I only read the economists, then I just I just be oblivious to some of the most important things in the world. I, like, and you know, like you know like like my conscience would would not allow that. I can't go and write a book acting like I know a lot about education when I've only looked at it from one point of view. I've got to look at it from every point of view that seems like it's gonna like like it's got anything to contribute at all. So you know like like you know in this book, if I if I try to write it without reading psychology, it would just be a stupid book. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's only by reading psychologists that I'm able to say, all right, these are people who have investigated, for example, learning how to learn and how much of that is there, right? And I can, you know, read like, an enormous amount of, stu- of, of the research on this. And it's like, all right, well, looks like the people who study this are very pessimistic about how much learning how to learn there really is. And that fits very importantly with my whole thesis because, you know, you might, you know, like, you know, classic history teacher's story, well, why is this useful? Well, you won't use the actual dates that I'm teaching you, but I'm teaching you how to think. And then psychologists are the people who actually try to measure how much learning how to think occurs. And if they say, well, not very much, I say, ah, well, that's important, and I better work that into my story if it's going to be right. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. If people want to find your book, The Case Against Education, where's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, Amazon. Where you, if you just click on my uh, on my website, bcapman.com, there's a lot of links right there. Really easy. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Caleb, we just heard from Brian Kaplan. What's something that you learned from our conversation with him? Something that I learned is that there's alternate routes to get in an education besides the education system. Or should they, I should say this better. There's alternate routes to learning than just the education system. You know, he talked about vocational skills, and we even talked about... Google Scholar. Google Scholar. I didn't even know that was a thing. We talked about the internet, reading books, getting real-life experience. And so that's just one of my takeaways, is that, you know, the education system isn't the only way that you can learn. And it shouldn't be. It should never be the only way that you learn. You should never stop learning out after getting out of school. Boom, goes the dynamite. So if you enjoyed this episode or if it made you stretch your thinking a little bit, the best way to make sure that you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player that you use. 
If you learned something from this episode, you know, leave us a rating and write a review of what you learned on the podcast or future topics that you would like us to talk about as well. Or hit us up on social media on Instagram. Our handle is at the Learners Corner or on Twitter at Learners Podcast or right on our wall on our Facebook page. At us and tell us your high school mascot and the best one, again, wins my undying love and appreciation forever. And so let us know what you learned about. We always love learning from you, hearing from you, and letting us know what you would like to learn about as well. And it can help us determine some things that we want to talk about on our future, on a future podcast as well. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing.